Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, we're going to start, Lord willing, a new series in Galatians for several weeks. Um, If you think prayers don't matter, they do, they do. Jeff and Jance, good to see you again. We're going to open a study in Galatians. Galatians is the very first book that the Apostle wrote to any church. For those of you that don't know, the Apostle Paul, the Latin polis means little. L-I-T-T-L-E. His Hebrew name was Saul. He was born of Jewish parents in the city of Tarshish, probably sent to Jerusalem as a teenager to study with Gamaliel, who was the great rabbinical scholar and and Jewish uh, teacher, uh, Judaism teacher of that era. Paul, or Saul at that point, was a devout Pharisee. Most of you know a little bit about his history. He was a zealot uh, for the Jewish faith. Uh, and practiced the law of Moses. He persecuted followers of Jesus when the church was founded, put them in prison, and even consented to their murder. So he was an opponent, an adversary of the gospel of Jesus Christ, probably more than anyone. However, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, as most of you know, and he was confronted by Jesus Christ himself, and instantly he turned from a persecutor into a preacher, from an adversary into an advocate of the gospel. If you want to see the power of God changing a life in an instant, that's an example. I look around this room and Jesus Christ has changed your life. Some cases in an instant, most of the time, day by day by day by day. So we look at where we're going and we say, I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. Amen? Most all of us can say that the power of God transformed Paul, but he's also transformed us. So God used Paul to carry the gospel to the Gentile world. God transformed this man from an opponent of the gospel to the greatest missionary in the history of the church. And he also used to pen at least 13 letters of the New Testament Bible. Uh, We're not sure about the book of Hebrews. Some scholars think he did that as well. So Galatians is a very small letter, about six chapters We're going to spend, Lord willing, about eight weeks in there, but it's a a small letter with a large impact. This letter has been called the Magna Carta of Spiritual Freedom. It's been called the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. This was Martin Luther's favorite book. He called it My Katie. As most of you know, he married Catherine von Bora, who was a, a nun prior to their marriage. And Luther loved this book because this book was instrumental in him coming to faith when he read in it the just shall live by faith. It's really a miniature book of Romans. It was written earlier, but it encapsulates the core thinking of justification by faith, and we're going to be examining that. It's the Christian's Declaration of Independence. The key problem that Paul writes about in Galatians is the central issue of human existence. In the oldest book in the Bible, Job, a man whom God himself called blameless and upright, frames the central problem of human existence when Job asks in Job chapter 9, verse 2, 
How can a man be in the right before God? Every single world religion is man's attempt to answer this particular question. Every religion at some level assumes a deity of some kind. Some religions believe in a personal god or gods, pantheism, polytheism. Some believe in an impersonal supernatural force. Have you ever seen Star Wars? Have you ever noticed the blessing that's always said in Star Wars, the benediction? May the force be with you. That's a benediction. Even that is an indicator of human belief that there is some power beyond us, right? Every religion assumes there's some first cause, whether personal or impersonal, that's responsible for the universe we observe. And deep down, every human being, Romans 1 tells us it's written into our DNA, every human being knows that there is a God, number one, and that our relationship with that God is wrong. Something's broken in our relationship with God. So the goal of all human religion is to try and bridge that barrier that separates God and man, to draw closer to God, and every world religion, with the exception of one, gives everyone the exact same answer. You got to do better. You got to work harder. You got to improve yourself, right? It's self-help. The Hindu is trying to free themselves from karma. The endless cycle of reincarnation. That's, that's in Tennessee, tarnation. Carnation is the Indian version. The Buddhist works to free themselves from all desire. That's the goal of Buddhism. No desire at all. When you're free from all desire, you've achieved a state of nirvana. And that takes work, effort, right? The New Ager works very hard at being their own god. And you have to work extremely hard to believe that, right? Followers of Islam labor in spiritual bondage at observing religious law in the hope of qualifying for a future paradise. So all religions proscribe and prescribe some spiritual disciplines and practices. They all have lists of do's and don'ts, things that you must do and things that you must not do if you want to grow closer to God or become more like God. Now the reality is there's only two possible options to having a relationship with God. One of them is human-centered, and one of them is God-centered. Religion is always human-centered. Religion always begins with me, with humanity, with self. It's all about what I must do to earn God's favor, what work I must do to impress Him so that He will bless me and not curse me. It's me taking the initiative to reach out to God. Christianity is completely unique on the planet because it alone teaches that humanity's relationship with God begins with Him and not us. We don't find God, He finds us. We don't look for God, He looks for us. Matter of fact, He knows where we are at all times. We don't earn God's favor, it's a free gift. Galatians teaches that good works obeying a list of do's and don'ts, be they Judaism's do's and don'ts or any other do's and don'ts, can never make us right with God. See, God is perfectly holy. God's standard is perfect righteousness. But as the proverb says, Mom, nobody's perfect. Have you heard that? That's a true statement, correct? That's precisely the problem. 
God is perfection, his standard is perfection, and we're not perfect. The gospel says that since we cannot reach God by our efforts, God reaches us through his efforts. Here's the key idea. The only way to God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing else. Period, full stop. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This was the rallying kind of the Reformation. How many of you, I'm not going to ask the question, don't raise your hand. How many of you are taking pharmaceutical concoctions of one kind or another? Don't raise your hand. I don't know how many drugs you're taking. I'm not going to ask you where you got them either. Because if you say, on the street corner, Brad, on the street corner. Actually, I know many of you have medicine chests that you share with your friends. What do you have for a headache? Well, I've got stuff from six years ago. It's aged. <laughs> really good stuff. You might want to try it, right? That's, what are friends for, right? I mean, come on. So all pharmaceutical prescriptions contain exact quantities, right, of mixtures, uh, of medicines. They're not approximate formulations. If you're a pharmacist, as Megan and Jeff are, they will tell you that they are very precise quantities and formulations. If you alter the formula and a prescription by adding substances or subtracting elements instead of helping the patient, you could kill the patient. In the same way, the gospel of Jesus Christ is infinitely precise. It was created and gifted to us by God himself. The gospel is not open to alteration. It's not open to tampering. It's not open to human engineering. It does not need improvement. It's perfect as is. We are not to add to it or subtract from it. And that's, of course, the Galatian core argument. Very nearly the last words in the Bible warn humanity against tampering with God's word. Revelation 22, 18. Four verses from the end. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Words matter. They can be a matter of life and death. On January 25th, 1990, Avianca Flight 52 from Columbia crashed just 15 miles short of New York's Kennedy Airport, killing 73 passengers. The reason? The plane just ran out of gas. Under, in, under international regulations, each airliner must carry enough fuel to reach its destination as well as its assigned alternate destination, plus enough extra fuel to handle at least 45 minutes of delays. Due to low fuel conditions, the Avianca pilots had requested priority, not emergency landing. Because the exact word emergency was not used, and due to heavy traffic and bad weather conditions, the ill-fated plane was paced on a holding pattern until it ran out of gas. 73 people died because of the difference between the words priority and emergency. 
Do you think God takes every word of the Bible seriously? He gave us every word, every place name, every yacht, and every tittle because he takes his word seriously. So when God gives you and I directions, they're never approximate. Have you ever received directions from someone and they didn't help? <laughs> As a matter of fact, they were worse. You would have been better off not asking. You know, the worst people to ask directions from are someone who drives the road every day. They no longer are paying attention. Where do you turn left? What's the street name? I don't know. I've been turning left there for 23 years. I don't even look at the signs anymore. Those are not good people to get directions from. When God gives you directions, they're precise. And the most important directions of all are, how do you get to heaven? You would want precise directions for an eternal destination when there's not a do-over. Correct? Say yes. So this letter to Galatians defines clearly and defends the gospel. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men or through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Here's the principle. The gospel is God's idea, not ours. We are free to accept it or reject it, but we are not free to alter it. God gives you free will. You can accept or reject it, but you cannot alter it. So Paul's character and the message of the gospel, here's the context. They're being attacked. Paul has come to Galatia a number of years before, and he's been followed up by a group of Jewish teachers called Judaizers. And these are Jewish teachers who follow Paul from city to city to city. We would call them today cultists, as he planted churches. And contrary to Paul's gospel, they taught that faith in Christ was not enough to be saved from sin. In addition to faith in Christ, you also had to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. In other words, you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. And in order to promote their message, they had to attack Paul. They had to discredit Paul. And so they began to attack his apostleship. They claimed he really wasn't a legitimate apostle because he hadn't seen Jesus when he walked on the earth. He wasn't one of the, quote, 12 that had been flesh and blood seeing Jesus face to face. The guy's not legitimate. His, his gospel is of human origin. He's making this stuff up. And therefore, it's inaccurate. So Paul begins this letter by defending his apostleship because that's the authority of the message he gives. Now, an apostle is, is, a, is a, one who is sent on a mission with a message that bears the authority of the one who sent them. For example, the United States government sends an ambassador to a foreign country, and they instruct that ambassador, here's what you're going to say. The ambassador personally has no authority, but when they speak for the United States government, the message they bring carries the full weight of the United States government to whoever happens to be listening. Paul says, the message I brought to you is not mine. It came directly from Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is God, and we know that because he was resurrected from the dead. Matter of fact, this risen Christ had met me on the road to Damascus. Jesus Christ personally called me, Paul says, to be an apostle and gave me this specific message. So my authority to teach you comes from God himself. 
these false teachers' authority to teach comes from human tradition. And you know, the other thing, Paul was not unknown to this group of churches. He had founded the churches in Galatia. He wasn't a stranger to them. He was really their spiritual father. So he had authority to speak to them because the message she sent came from Christ himself, Almighty God. It was God's message. And he knew them. They had come to faith in Christ because of his ministry to them. So Paul is, first of all, establishing his credentials as a bona fide representative of God, someone who speaks for God. And Paul says, when you reject God's apostle, you reject God's message. How many of you still get some snail mail? I didn't say you liked it. I just said, how many of you get it? When you get a letter in snail mail, what you do with it is determined by where it came from and who sent it. If it's junk mail, typically we didn't even open it, right? It gets shredded or tossed in a round file. However, how many of you have gotten a letter where the return address says IRS? Anybody gotten a letter ever from the IRS? I'll bet you you opened it. I'll bet you read it carefully. Maybe more than once. You want to know what the Internal Revenue Service has to say to you because they can have a significant impact on your future, depending on how you respond. So Paul is the author of this letter, the human author. The message of this letter comes from God himself. Who are the recipients? Paul says, to the churches, plural, at Galatia. Rob's going to show you a map. This is a map of Paul's first missionary journey to Cyprus. You'll notice the big island of Cyprus. And then the regions of Galatia. And he's really talking about the southern portion of Galatia. Paul had visited this region. His first missionary journey was between 44 and 46, about two, two and a half years. And we went over this several months ago. This is Acts 13 and 14. If you want to know Paul's ministry, first ministry to Galatia, they had traveled through the island of Cyprus, and then up to the cities of Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So there's four cities in southern Galatia, the region of Galatia, where they had founded churches in each one of these. Now this letter to the Galatians, Galatian churches, was not a single letter from Paul to a church. It was a circular letter. So this letter was going to be taken from the church at Iconium and then taken to the church at Derby and read and then taken to the church at Lister and read. So it was a circular letter. It went from church to church to church at that point in time. This region initially was really populated with Celtic people uh, who lived in the region of Galatia. They had originally migrated from Gaul. Gaul is modern-day France. And most of this, the tribes that lived here had come from France about 280 B.C., Matter of fact, the name Galatia simply means the country of the Gauls. That's what Galatia means. The Romans conquered this whole area uh, in uh, 189 BC, but they allowed a measure of local governance. But Galatia became a formal Roman province in 25 BC. So it's likely that Paul wrote this letter about 49 BC AD probably three years after he had left. He had ministered there and founded churches from 44 to 46. He wrote this letter probably three years later. And he probably wrote it from the city of Antioch in Syria, which is just north of Jerusalem. It gives you kind of a framework. He says, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the principle. 
God's unmerited kindness to us produces peace in us that transcends circumstances around us. God's unmerited kindness to us produces peace in us that transcends circumstances around us. And Paul typically, when you read his letters, he opens his letters with grace and peace. Pretty common opening. Grace is the Greek word katas, C-H-A-R-I-S. It means gift. Grace means unmerited gift, unmerited favor, unearned kindness, unearned goodwill. So it's literally something I didn't earn, but something that God in his grace gives me freely, even though I didn't earn it. And peace is the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom does not simply mean no conflict, the absence of conflict. Shalom is much more all-encompassing. Shalom has to do with a sense of harmony and wholeness and health and well-being and security. So it's a much more global term of well-being. And Paul says, I want you to notice the source of both grace and peace is who? God, right? The source of grace and peace is God. God the Son, Jesus, is the means by which the Father extends His grace to us. And I want you to notice what proper title is used for Jesus Christ. It says, Lord Jesus Christ. That's the formal name of the risen Christ. Lord denotes deity. The word Lord literally means master or owner. So when you're singing in church this morning at 8 o'clock, before Pastor Roger comes along in the book of James and just whacks you over the head, which we all need. So if you haven't been there, make sure you go there. You need to whack upside the head. That's a good place to get it. It means master. When we say Lord and we sing about Lord, we're singing about master or owner. We don't own ourselves. We are bought with a price. Jesus Christ bought us. He's our owner. Jesus means Yahweh saved. So it has the name to do with salvation. Joshua is another Hebrew derivative of that that means Yahweh saves. And Christ is Messiah. It means the anointed one, the sent one, is functional. So it's important to understand that if you want peace, it depends on God's grace. Your peace depends on His kindness. When by faith you accept His grace through Jesus' payment for your sins, then you can have peace, that He is controlling all things for your ultimate good because Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, criteria one, and who are called according to His purpose. Well, if you don't belong to Him and you haven't received Him as Savior, you don't have any such assurance. So your peace depends upon your receiving His grace through Jesus Christ. We know that God, obviously, is the master and owner of everything. And we know that the Lord Jesus loves us because He is the one in verse 4 who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present age according to the will of our God and Father. Warren Wiersbe notes, the gospel centers in a person, Jesus Christ, who paid a price, He gave Himself to die on the cross. Jesus paid the price that He might achieve a purpose delivering sinners from bondage. It's interesting, it says he gave. And the implication is he gave himself. The most significant gift you can always give is the gift of yourself. It's also the most expensive one, and Jesus Christ, of course, 
gave himself as a voluntary substitutionary sacrifice because he died in our place. We deserve to die for our sins, and Christ took our place. That's one of the great, greatest marks of love. Greater love has no one than this that you day down your life. And he did it to take away our sins. Most of you know that sins are an archery term, which means you miss the mark. If you're shooting an arrow and it doesn't hit the target, it falls short. God's perfect standard of righteousness, that target in the center, and we all fall short. That's why works never get the job done. And it says he came to pay for our sins, but to rescue us. And this is pretty tough on human pride because most of us think we're very large and in charge and we don't need rescuing. We need rescuing. It literally means to deliver, to draw out, to pluck out of something that is dangerous. See, the gospel ultimately is the good news that God rescued us, rescued sinners from the penalty and power of sin, which was killing us, putting us to death. The gospel is all about saving helpless people from the certain death that our sin produces. And he says, I want to rescue you from this present evil age. How many of you think we're living in a reasonably evil age? Maybe the word would be extremely evil age. And this word present evil age, the word present means close at hand. I, I talk to people from time to time, they say, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, the culture was much friendlier to Christianity. That's probably true. There was a residual of at least morality, whether or not people believe the Bible, of moral conduct. Today, the evil is encroaching in our space, if you will. Our space. Boy, howdy. It means it's imminent. It's very close at hand. You don't have to go find evil. It's prevalent. It's everywhere. We are living in an age that increasingly not only tolerates evil, it encourages it and embraces it and exalts it. Behavior that decades ago would be hidden in shame is now publicly displayed with pride and given awards in art studios. Amazing. Sin is not hidden anymore, it's highlighted. The good news is, the really good news is, this present evil age has an expiration date. The Jews viewed time as divided into two eras. This present age and the age to come. This present age is the one we're in now, and it's the age of space, time, energy, energy. It's this present world, which is sinful, evil, decaying, and dying. That's this present age, and we live in that age. The age to come is the era when God will have cleansed the world of wickedness and righteousness will rule and reign. So Jesus came to set us free from the power and the penalty of this present era. But he didn't come to set you free from the presence of evil. You know when you get set free from the presence of evil? When you leave here. And the older we get and the more we see the consequences of sin and the brokenness and what it does to people, the more heaven looks good. And your 25-year-old children look at you and go, I don't know how you think of that. And you say, wait 40 years. Wait till life puts enough scar tissue on and you see the brokenness and you, you get tired of dealing with sin in your own life. You look in the mirror and go, I'm tired of my, my sin. I'm tired of me. Right? I want to go where there's no more sin. That's why heaven gets sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. 
Verse 5. To him be the glory forevermore. Glory here means heavy. There's an old song that says, he ain't heavy, he's my brother, right? The old song from the 60s. But glory literally has to do with weight and mass and gravity and splendor and dignity, right? It, glory is a very uh, solid word. Paul wants Jesus Christ to receive the glory, and he says forever and ever. Literally in the Greek, it means unto the ages of the ages. He's, Paul is trying to express in human language the, an eternal dimension that, of course, is beyond our experience here on earth. But Paul's motive was the glory of God. The false teacher's motive was what? Themselves. And, of course, this is very convicting for me because I'm going to ask you the question just like the Holy Spirit asked me the question. What motivates you? What motivates you? Unfortunately, self always wants to be at the head of the line. That's sinful human nature. Paul says, I want Jesus Christ to receive the glory. That should be our motive as well. As a matter of fact, it's been said, very common, it's amazing what you can get done when you don't care who gets the credit. If your goal is that Jesus Christ will always get the credit, you will be amazed at the supernatural work that he will do in and through you. Verse 6. Now, Paul is diving headlong into the conflict. There's no commendation here. Usually he gives some kind word of commendation. He is in their face. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, I want to get your pins out. This is a very comprehensive principle I'm going to give you, but it's extraordinarily important. So write this down. We're going to, I'm going to repeat it three times. Definition of the gospel. The gospel is that sinful man can only come to holy God by faith, accepting the salvation that God's grace makes available through Christ's death and resurrection. This is really dense, I understand. You need to write this down. You can percolate on this the rest of your life. The gospel is that sinful man can only come to holy God. That's the problem. Sinful man needs a relationship with holy God. How does that happen? By faith, accepting the salvation that God's grace makes available through Christ's death and resurrection. The gospel is that sinful man can only come to holy God by faith, accepting the salvation that God's grace makes available through Christ's death and resurrection. So Paul is confronting them head-on directly with the crisis that these churches are facing. He's astonished and he's shocked at their gullibility in following such obviously false teacher. He says, you are becoming spiritual deserters. You are spiritual turncoats. You are committing spiritual treason by turning away from Jesus. This word literally, deserting or turn away, it literally means to change or transfer your allegiance. Instead of saying, I pledge allegiance, they are saying, I change allegiance. From Jesus to another gospel. They were in the process of turning their back on Christ as the source of salvation. And apparently they were taken in and deceived by these false teachers very quickly and very easily, and Paul is stunned. I spent this time with you. I grounded you in the faith. 
How is it the first time some false teacher comes in, you've got no response? You're falling off a cliff. You have no ability to resist deception. Apparently, they were like small children. You give them candy, a stranger, they'll follow, right? Many, many people are like that in the faith. They're not grounded, and so they're easily deceived. Paul says, you're not just rejecting me, you're rejecting the God that sent Jesus Christ and the gospel here. And he says, you're following a different gospel. The Greek word there means not the same kind. It means something strange and something foreign, even something illicit. So exactly what was this different gospel that was being preached? Paul contrasts the genuine gospel from the counterfeit gospel here in the next chapter. Galatians 2.16. Here is the core of this book. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no, no flesh is justified. And then he carries on in Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For, and this is the verse that changed Martin Luther's life and turned the Reformation afterburner on and changed Western civilization. The righteous man shall live by faith. That phrase is everything. Now, Remember, mankind's central problem has always been their broken relationship with God. That's our core problem. The bad news is that everyone has broken God's law and is guilty before God's bar of justice. Romans 3.23 says what? All have and... So our sins have separated us from God and that separation is death. Romans 6.23 says for the wages is death. So the central issue in all of life is how do we restore the broken relationship between sinful, dead humanity and holy, living God? And that means our sin has to be dealt with. So the key question, what does it take for us to be justified? Justified means to be declared not guilty. That's what justification means. It means God is declaring you not guilty. By the way, God doesn't declare anyone not guilty because we've kept the law of God perfectly, right? Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. So when you look in the mirror, he means you and me, right? He's talking to me. Brad, you're that one. You're not even righteous either. No sinful human being has obeyed God's laws perfectly. And if you want to be justified by works, that's the argument that the Judaizers are saying, keep the law and you'll earn God's favor. He says the standard is 100%. So on a scale of 0 to 100, 0 on one and 100 on the other, you ask people, what's, how would you grade yourself? If Satan is 100% evil, 0 on God's standard, and God is 100% good, that's 100%, where are you today? And people will say, eh, 
better than 50%. I mean, I've done more good than bad. So maybe 70, 75, and I think that's a passing grade. You say, well, this is not uh, a letter score. This is pass or fail. And the passing score is 100%. No errors allowed. I don't care if they're earned or unearned or forced or unforced. No errors allowed, 100%. No one keeps God's laws perfectly. And since man cannot justify themselves, God did it for us. God loved us enough to send Jesus who died in our place because he did keep the law perfectly. And he took our sins, the greatest exchange in the world, on himself, and he gave us his righteousness. That's like you have someone who loves you so much, you can give them all your debt and they give you all their assets. And they have assets and you have debt. Pretty good swap, right? Well, Jesus is assets, righteousness, 100% perfect righteousness, and we have nothing but debt. And Jesus said, I'll take your debt and I'll give you my righteousness in exchange. And we know that God loves us because Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still at war, while we were still battling him, while we were still rebellious, while we were still in the middle of sin, he died for us. And of course, faith is the means by which we receive God's grace when we believe and accept Jesus' payment for our sins. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him by faith, to the game, he gave the right to become children of God. You are all members of God's family. This is one of the most astonishing things that Jim was talking about earlier, that we are family. We're not just family on this planet, we're family forever. Within 100 years, every single one of us will be in heaven if you know Jesus. Can you imagine? You talk about a family reunion. You'll never have to say goodbye. You'll never have to say um, see you later. Um, I'll text you. <laughs> don't, don't call me, I'll call you. We're going to be ever present. And you'll all be really nice people then. <laughs> I will too. Now that will be a first class miracle. Amazing. God says it's either justification by faith or justification by works through keeping the law, and they're mutually exclusive. You can't have it both ways. If you believe in the law, you're trusting in your own ability. If you believe in faith, you're trusting in God's ability. Both promise you heaven, but only one way lives there, right? Only one way leads there. Humanity's good works, how does God view them? Filthy rags. Doesn't even count. They have no value for salvation because Jesus Christ already paid the penalty for sin. And we can add absolutely nothing to it. Now remember, <clears throat> when the church was born at Pentecost, every Christian was already a Jew. There were no Gentile Christians until God called Peter to preach to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his household. And when they repented and believed, God sent his Holy Spirit on them as visible confirmation to the Jewish Christians that God, that Jesus had paid for the sins of the Gentiles as well as the sins of the Jews, so everyone could become Christians. Now, some Jews refused to believe that, that anyone could be in a right relationship just by faith. You had to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law because that was the Jewish route to salvation before Christ came. And so these were these Judaizers, and these were these Jewish teachers that come to the Galatian church, and they said, in essence, 
Christ's work is insufficient. You have to add something to it. You have to add your good works. You have to merit the merit of Christ. That is a lie from hell. They were persuading the Galatian Christians to abandon liberty for legalism, to exchange freedom in Christ for slavery to the law. And Peter, remember, in, in Acts 15 says, Why would you hang the burden of the law around the neck of them? We haven't been able to keep it ourselves. We can't even keep ten. Why would you tell them they have to keep more than that and keep them perfectly? So you look and you say, well, why is humanity so stuck on, I'm going to do better and I'll do good enough and I'll earn God's favor? Because it takes humility to come to Christ. For us to come to Christ, we have to admit that we're a sinner and we need a Savior and we cannot save ourselves and our pride hates that. And the law, good works, feeds our pride. Because see, our pride wants to brag. If I do enough good stuff, God owes me. We don't want to submit to God. We want God to owe us. So the law, if I do all these good works, God owes me heaven. We're going to so impress God with our righteousness that he has to let us in. I've heard that. I've told people, you ever tried to get in the White House without permission? You ever tried to get Buckingham Palace, just walk up and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, let me in. Well, who owns heaven? That's God's place. Do you think he has a right to let in who he wants? Uh-huh. It's not the gospel of the Bible, verse 7. There's really not another gospel, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There's only one genuine gospel, and any additions or subtractions to it Pervert it. So anytime you talk to anybody who has Jesus plus anything, that's not the gospel. You've got to keep these rules in order to be saved. That's not the gospel. You can't do this or that in order to be saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about what Jesus Christ did, not what you and I do or not do. Well, these Jewish Judaizers were coming in and they were teaching false doctrine and it was creating a lot of disturbance, a lot of unrest, a lot of anxiety. Because the Galatian Christians had been taught, your salvation depends on what Christ has done. And now these Jewish teachers come along and say, no, 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 no. Your salvation depends on what you do. And they were getting a little worried about it. Because they looked in the mirror and said, well, I don't always do everything right. Here's the problem with works. If it's your good works that save you, it's your bad works that can cause you to lose your salvation. Correct? It is absolutely not biblical if anybody teaches you can lose your salvation because your salvation never depended on you in the first place. You can't behave well enough to get into heaven, and if you're a Christian and once you're saved, you can't behave badly enough to get out of heaven because it doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on what he's already done, and his salvation is secure. Verse 8. Paul gets really direct. But if we are even an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And in verse 9, he says it again. As we have said before, so now I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what is received, he is to be accursed. Here's the principle. Refuse to compromise the truth of the gospel because it's the only way to salvation. 
This is not sugar and spice and everything nice, right? This is not Paul being gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Paul is in their face. This is fighting words. And he basically resorts to hyperbole. He says, even if I or any other man or even hyperbole, an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel other than faith alone in Christ alone, he is to be damned. He literally says, damn them to hell. Well, that's what rejection of the gospel will get you, right? Separation from God. The word accursed here is anathema. It literally means devoted to destruction. Devoted to destruction. That means eternal separation from God in hell. And he uses language that strong because the consequences of getting the gospel wrong get you to an eternal destination separated from God forever. That's why the gospel is so critical. What you believe about how to be right with God determines your eternal destiny. Whose directions are you listening to? Our culture will tell you that if you just do enough good to outweigh the bad, God has to let you in heaven. Just a clue. God doesn't have to do anything other than what He's promised because He always keeps His word. However, He's already made the way He's told us. Jesus Christ said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The good news is, is there is the way to, sept, to reunify, to reconcile the broken relationship between sinful man and holy God. And it's the God-man, the perfect sinless sacrifice for our sins, Jesus Christ. We must make sure to get the gospel correct. Let me summarize before uh, Tom comes up and leads us in prayer and praises. Here's our key idea. The only way to God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing else. Do not add to the gospel. Do not subtract the gospel. Number two, the gospel is God's idea, not ours. We are free to accept it or reject it, but we are not free to alter it or tamper it. Number three, God's unmerited kindness to us produces peace in us that transcends circumstances around us. The definition of the gospel is found in verse 4 to 6. The gospel is that sinful man can only come to holy God by faith accepting the salvation that God's grace makes available through Christ's death and resurrection. And lastly, our response to that is, be number one, be very clear on the gospel, agree with God, and number two, refuse to compromise. I was going to say never tolerate any compromise of the truth of the gospel because your eternal destiny is at stake. Okay? We rocked through a lot of material. So I want you to put your seatbelts on. We have eight weeks to get through one of the most consequential epistles in the New Testament. Lord willing, next week we'll continue to pick up with verse chapter 1. So please read ahead. Please be praying because there are people who need to know how to get to heaven and you are the means by which God wants to reach them. I love you. Now that you know...
Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.